This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. We have another very special guest uh, this week. Uh, We have the opportunity to talk about the state of democracy, the challenges, struggles, and opportunities for democracy in Ukraine, uh, one of the United States' most important partners and one of the most important countries in Europe today. And we're joined by someone who's doing some of the most important reporting and writing about this, Natalia Gumenyuk. Uh, Welcome, Natalia. Uh, great to uh, talk to you. <laughs> Nat- Natalia is a uh, Ukrainian author, documentary filmmaker, and journalist of great renown. She's actually visiting the United States now, making kind of a tour, sharing her insights with everyone. She specializes in reporting on conflict in Ukraine, on human rights, and foreign affairs. She's the founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab, which I encourage everyone to take a look at. Really interesting material. It's aimed at really popularizing public-spirited journalism, uh, journalism that really speaks to the interests of the public, not to the interests of parties or organized interests, as too much of journalism in our world does today. So she's a pioneer in this area. Since the 2014 revolution in Ukraine, she's reported on events in Eastern Ukraine, and she's one of the few journalists regularly traveling to Russian-occupied Crimea. I'm sure we'll talk about that that subject. In 2020, uh, Natalia published a book of her reporting that I recommend to all of you, The Lost Island, Tales from Occupied Crimea. She also wrote a book a few years earlier, Maidan Tahrir, In Search of the Lost Revolution, which is actually about the Arab Spring. So we clearly have the best person to give us a firsthand account of what's going on in all of these areas. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Natalia, uh, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Peace, the privilege, the chore. The little green men in Donetsk, the missile launcher grotesque, have volunteered for the war. Sebastopol has fallen, Vladimir dreams of Stalin, and the angry young man of lore has volunteered for the war. In Kiev, they remember the words that they cried from their yearning herds. Indeed, how loud, how lucid the roar, but the dead in the ground, the unfortunate core, have all volunteered for the war. Will the cold Carpathian ground accept these men in their shroud? Will the Dnieper in its ancient row guide the right dove with its portentous flow? For the cargo, the harbor, the oar have all volunteered for the war. Peace, the privilege, the chore. Zachary, this this is really one of your very best ones. Uh, I love the, the sense, the feel for the the land and uh, the historical references. What is your poem about? My poem is really about how in in, in a country like Ukraine, in a conflict that we've seen, uh, in in a conflict like the one we've seen in Crimea and in Eastern Ukraine, how how everything seems to move towards war, even though no one really wants war, at least no one admits to wanting war, and how in many ways these systems that are supposed to protect us and prevent war oftentimes break down very fast. That's really insightful and a a great place to open our conversation. Uh, Natalia, if we could go back in a little bit of history, I I remember, and maybe some of our listeners remember or have read about uh, the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. 
when Ukraine uh, attained its independence, there was so much optimism, particularly in the United States, uh, about democracy in Ukraine. Uh, how have how did we get from 1991 to 2014? Why has it been such a difficult road in Ukraine? It was difficult, of course. However, I should say from comparing to, you know, there were 15 republics in the Soviet Union, somehow Ukraine till 2014 has more or less seamless and peaceful road to the, where we are before the war started. We knew at that time there were conflicts in, in different areas. However, when we reflect on what happened today, we really understand that in end of the 80s and early 90s, still Ukraine has quite a strong civil society. And the fall of the Soviet Union was something not imposed, which sometimes people prefer or some propagandists prefer to say. <laughs> I'm currently working on the project on the 30th years of the Ukrainian independence. It got its independence in August 20, uh, 1991. And when we are looking at the archives and everything, we saw that, in fact, the, the, the peaceful uh, transforma transformation was possible also because all stratas from the society in Ukraine from the people who suffered from Chernobyl disaster or from the veterans who come from the Soviet-Afghan war or, you know, like the, the people who were striking, they were all kind of having a lot of hopes. Of course, that was not easy. And for me, the idea of why it was difficult, it's not just because people were naive. There were quite strong financial interest, quite strong interest of also of the members of the former Com Communist Party to you know, have and keep their position in in power. So in nineties, uh, it was not like you all of a sudden have received democracy and some things went wrong. No, that was a struggle which uh, went on when you needed to have the transparent elections. You need to have also there was a huge economic crisis, and the economic crisis was not really the result of the just the Ukrainian independence that was also the part of the not working Soviet economy system. So I do think that it's also very important to reflect on these times. Yet the very important thing was still um, the, um, the, the the change which happened in Russia uh, with the Vladimir Putin idea of more or less keeping the Soviet Union alive again and not allowing the, the, the other independent states States to, to, to choose their own future. So uh, that was an unfortunate moment in history. We can, of course, talk more about that. Uh, but in the end, what was special in 2014 is that like a mighty neighbor wanted just undo something which has been uh, which hasn't happened years ago. Right, right. So, so what made uh, this extraordinary moment, which I hope some of our listeners remember in 2014, when so many Ukrainians came out in the streets uh, to protest against a Russian-imposed government, a government that was going to do things that ran so against the interests of Ukrainians with regard to the rest of Europe. Uh, what, what made that moment possible? And then, of course, we can talk about what happened after that moment, too. You mentioned uh, that Ukraine is important. You know, there are, there are hundreds of countries in, uh, uh, in the world. So why all of a sudden one country is, is, is more important? Uh, partly also because the Ukraine is kind of an example for the Soviet world. Things can be different. 
that, for instance, uh, compared to, you know, Russia or Belarus, that people can come to the street, there could be a fair elections. And uh, the moment I, I, uh, I reported previously also the Arab Spring, there was an interesting moment in the history, but also there was this uh, anticipation of the different dictators that really the strongest could fall. Uh, so when Maidan, when the Ukrainian revolution was succeeding, and the Ukrainian president uh, at that time, who had given an order to shut uh, his own people, uh, has escaped the country, and the, 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 there was a political crisis in a way that uh, what we call revolution has won, there was this moment of vulnerability in which the other uh, state decided to... Uh, uh, to occupy the the part of the Ukrainian land I, uh, by 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 which I I, I mean the uh, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, for me that was the moment of the let's say counter revolution because for the Russian state uh, at that time for the Kremlin it was very critical to show that the peaceful protest that they are not resulting in the democracy or in the reforms they do result in in war and chaos. That's not true. You know, there could be a different development. However, the difference of the totalitarian regime is they want to you know, create the reality. So quite a lot of effort were uh, given propaganda, all kind of the things, but most important, the military force to really prove that. And uh, in something, uh, partly it was successful. So for the Russian population, uh they had this example of like, don't go to the streets. Uh, you see, in case the war would start it. And if you think the war won't start it, we would start that war. So that for me uh, was the reason uh, why why it was, you know, a popular to grab the part of your neighbor's land in that moment of history. So you visited the Crimean Peninsula during Russian occupation, as Jeremy said in the introduction. What is it like now? How has it changed? What is interesting, that's already seven years, hard to grasp for uh, Ukrainians that this war is lasting longer than the Second World War. Uh, the, the, the most probably striking difference is the, the area which uh, people won't know. Uh, that's a nice part of the land for tourism with a sea, with a kind of Mediterranean climate, uh, a resort, uh, had become a kind of a frozen conflict zone. Uh, many people in the U.S. won't know, but you might heard something about like Transnistria or Ossetia or Abkhazia or, you know, like these non-recognized territories which are cut down from the rest of the world and where there is no really proper law. Uh, interesting enough that it's true that the uh, the Russian state kind of fueling some chunk of money to uh, Crimean Peninsula, but out of this resort-style territory, it, it has becoming more um, similar to the to the area where some of the things are not working, where you you know like where you out of which you can't really travel globally, uh, which maybe was okay thirty or forty years ago, but is quite unusual for the for the modern world. Uh, there are more military there. There are you know there is a military base there. So, uh, and there is somehow less freedom than in the rest of Russia, because 
there was always the, you know, if you if you grab part of the territory, you need to keep an eye on it. So in this regard, it's like coming back and bringing back the Soviet legacy of that territory where the things are more authoritarian than they where then they really are in, in, you know, like in Moscow, on St. Petersburg or, or, or elsewhere in, in, in Russia. And uh, is Russia seeking, as, as you see it, to use Crimea as a model for continued uh, aggression in East Ukraine as well? Um, because this, this is something not in the news a lot in the United States, but there's, there's evidence Sure. Uh, you know, there are two things. Uh, somehow we, we, we now can speculate that the later the military aggression in the eastern Ukraine uh, was partly done to distract the, the world from, uh, from, you know, from the occupation of Crimea. Um, yet after so many years uh, where we have kind of a puppet regimes, uh, this is also the another kind of territory which is where like up to three million people living, uh, four million people living, which is the gray zone. But after you know, if the, if if you do not resolve the conflict, uh, if you don't do anything, this the the status quo is not really helpful. So in a way, now uh, many many experts would say that Russia didn't want to really grab the territory; they wanted to have this territory because. Uh, you know, every war, it's it's toxic, it's poisoned the society, it's, you know, create a different discourse. Would I compare uh, to the U.S. to make the, the your audience understand it better? You understand, for instance, we understand internationally that, you know, up to 9-11, for instance, there was a different modus in the U.S. society. You kind of feel insecure. There is, it's given the, uh, despite the tragedy has happened, it also gives a lot of pretext for the state to, you know, to um, um, give up for some freedoms, uh, to have the public discourse of security, uh, the dominance of the preference of the security over the freedoms. So in this case, the, the whole war in Ukraine is used by, by, by Russia to, um, and, and, and the war itself, it's, it's really not helpful to the Ukrainian democracy. It's not helpful for the developing of the uh, democratic and prosperous society, apart from the uh, real like basic harm which has been done for the Ukrainian economy, because, you know, you, what probably is important also to mention that Ukraine didn't have a war uh, before that. You know, you some people might think about Eastern Europe, about the place where, you know, like there are all these kind of strange things happening. No, I mean, our late, latest war was the Second World War. So by then, despite all the problems of the Soviet Union, uh, the society never experienced the case that the people would be killed, that there are mines, you know, or, or some other things which were brought to the uh, to the Ukrainian soil. Um, so, in a way, that's that's the 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 complex uh, the complex issue for the um, you know influencing the country with the proxy conflict. So, how have the Ukrainian people uh, reacted, and I understand that's an overgeneralized question because Ukraine is a very diverse society uh, with a very diverse history, east and west, and in different provinces, of course. But how should uh, Americans, in particular, who are concerned about Russian aggression and want to support Ukraine and at least the democratic aspirations of Ukrainian citizens, how should we understand? how people have reacted to the events of from 2014 to the present, including, as you, as you just described, Russian aggression. How do we understand Ukrainian reactions? 
Look, uh, things have normalized, obviously. So there was the actual conflict in within the first year. Uh, it's the the, conf- the conflict is kind of far away from the capital. It doesn't mean that people don't suffer, but now we have this kind of a frozen conflict where, you know, there are sometimes shooting. But if you live in the capital of Ukraine, you might not even mention. You know, like it's like a distant for for Americans. You would understand that, like, uh, though it's happening in the Ukrainian soil, it feels like a distant for for the cities and residents and the people of the rest in the country. It feels like you still have the war. Your soldiers are dying. Your civilians are suffering somewhere. They are internally displaced. However, the most of the country is just like living the life as you know any other state in 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 Europe. Uh, yet, why I think it's important to you know support and think about that. Um, Ukraine is again, I would say the the great example for the region, uh, and somehow the, the the democracy in region also depends by the case of Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the biggest countries in in Europe, and a very important country for Eastern Europe. So later, the we we, we understand like if Ukraine is democratic, there are more chances that Belarus may become democratic, Georgia, Armenia, or Moldova, these other countries, or even Central Asia countries. If Ukraine is non-democratic, um, you know, forget forget about the democracy in those places because, like, uh, it influences the whole region. It's the 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 the, the, the front line of, of, of this of this fight. Uh, so. In, in the beginning of the war, many Ukrainians went to volunteer, you know, they support the people. Uh, but first of all, we need to look at the, the things which has happened after the revolution. It's about the really democratic reforms which Ukraine is pursuing. It's about, you know, changing the, uh, you know, like the, your, your uh, court system, changing your um, security service, somehow make, moving the, the, since then Ukraine, uh, Ukraine has is, is, is experienced a number of the different types of reforms aimed at more freedoms, more accountability, more transparency, and somehow we managed to reach the area where and I think that's most important, where in post-Soviet space, it's usually you see that the state as an oppressor. In our case, we have, we're living in this transformation when the state is the service. You know, like when you're not afraid of your state. Uh, it's a difficult road. Ukraine is not a super rich country. Uh, there are a lot of issues. There are the issues of corruption. There are issues of poor management. But more or less, after seven years, we managed to, you know, get into this situation where it's more or less about making the state serving its public and its citizens in all formats, uh, whether this fight with COVID or whether this, like, the education on something, you know, reforming the system which was for a while mismanaged, for a while misused by the oligarchs, misused by the politicians with their interests. So how should we understand Ukraine's uh, relationship with the United States in particular? Ukraine has played a role not just in our in our foreign policy, but also in our domestic politics, as we saw with the first impeachment of Donald Trump. So, so how should we understand that relationship? I 
interesting because, uh, look, of course, the the for Ukraine, US is a strategic partner. It's a global force, uh, and somehow we just re- uh, we recently had this summit between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden. And for instance, we understand that, of course, they would disa- discuss a bit Ukraine uh, just because uh, Russia wants to kind of play, uh, you know, play this, this story of the you know uh, spheres of influence. I somehow. Um, I'm very. I'm not at all a fan of the idea of the sphere of influence. I do think that the U.S. is in fact trying to kind of, uh, as a democratic state uh, and a global power, to say that like, no, 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 it's not any longer Cold War. Uh, but uh, Ukraine um, is exactly this showcase of uh, bringing back security and democracy to the further from the, you know, uh, Central European countries. In, after the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, there were little, the front line was somewhere in Poland, Czech Republic, the Baltics, where, you know, those countries were post-Soviet, they were post-socialist, but in, they were undemocratic, but today they are like, not perfect, but the democracies uh, where pe- people are quite, quite well off. And that was also thanks to the collaboration of the European of Europe and the United States. In this regard, Ukraine today is exactly at this front line where we can move the the democracy and the accountability and you know um, in in the uh, uh, in the uh, yeah, further east. And I think it's not just about our region because non-success, Ukrainian not success, uh, you know, the, the part that like, okay, a lot of has been done in order to bring more transparency and, uh, you know, fight with the corruption in Ukraine. I think it also might resemble in different parts of the world. Um, so that's why Ukraine is important for the U.S. foreign policy. Uh, the whole, uh, but can we um, explain by some historical reason the the whole issue with the Donald Trump or for in, for instance this um, you know talk between Ukrainian president and Donald Trump and the impeachment trial? Um, that's partly unfortunate for me, you know, uh, because we just happen to be in this uh, very middle of this uh, political crisis, domestic political crisis. I'm very happy that somehow Ukraine managed to um, uh, get out of it without playing to one or another party. And we have still this bipartisan support. I'm a bit disappointed and like, of course, saddened by the fact that the discussion about the Ukrainian corruption was overshadowing uh, the, 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 the whole other part of the Ukrainian image. Um, because to be honest, like I, for instance, covered the, the last elections in the States. Yeah, I've been traveling from D.C. to Wisconsin, to Minneapolis, to Florida. And, uh, you know, people were talking, you know, everybody heard the world Ukraine, but nobody really cared about what, what was going on in the country. Uh, it was just a, partly a tool of the um, inside domestic politics. I think that I hope this page is a bit over. Uh, but it happened that uh, we can, uh, we as well have have to learn a lot about the U.S. just by this uh, accident uh, and by this participation of the Ukrainian, of the American uh, politicians uh, in in also who, who wanted to meddle in the Ukrainian domestic policy. By this, I mean, for instance, Rudy Giuliani. 
Right. Yeah, I think it's 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 ironic that the United States, which I think quite traditionally and consistently has supported democratization in Ukraine, perhaps by um, putting Ukraine in the middle of this conflict and it becoming so embedded in American domestic politics that this actually undermined democracy in Ukraine. Um, and, and I'm concerned that the whole debate over the last three to four years and Donald Trump's activities and Rudy Giuliani's activities in Ukraine actually hurt the cause of democracy in Ukraine. What, is that an accurate assessment? I would disagree that it really, in the long run, in the end, it's hurt to some extent, but it's something which could be today healed. Because it a lot depends on Ukraine. Because, look, I think it, it, there was a harm, not just to Ukraine. The point, for instance, where the um, somehow in many post-authoritarian countries, a lot of like activists and everybody relied a bit on the Western support in terms of the strengthening the talks about human rights, things like the freedom of speech or fight with the corruption. Uh, within a couple of years, those kind of discussions were not present. We couldn't expect that the former U.S. president would speak about the democracy in Ukraine or, I don't know, freeing freedom of speech or things like that, because it would sound as a bit nonsense. Who would care, you know, like if, for instance, Donald Trump would speak that, like, oh, protect freedom of speech in Ukraine or like, you know, let's support independent media. So the harm has been done. However, what is interesting, because to put things in the context, and despite Ukraine has its problems and things as a reporter, as a Ukrainian journalist, I can write at the least and least of what Ukrainian government does wrong or what they haven't achieved. However, for me, it was interesting about the Ukrainian population that can you imagine that in times of war, in times of the conflict, in times of the, you know, such a polarization globally when the situation is generally unstable, Somehow the society, uh, in, in, in case of the growing populism, nationalism, conservatives, in, in the bad meaning of this world, by, by, by this I meaning like, it's okay to be conservative. I, I rather think in this kind of populist nationalism, which we have globally and also in Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine in the, the elections we had two years ago, managed somehow to elect the president who has a very moderate approach, you know, which is more about the people talking to each other, getting out of this populistic discussion about the identity, about the nationalism, about, for instance, you know, foreigners coming to our country, immigration or things like that. So I do think, oddly enough, Ukraine has passed its exam and looking at the international environment, which is not very healthy. Uh, we kind of managed to preserve, at least in our public discourse, the whole idea that tolerance matters, democracy matters, anti-corruption fights matters. It's very important to, to have rule of law. At, and even if we are not still on that stage, the, 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 the public discussion is that, okay, the good things are the good things. We, 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 we do, in a normal public discussion, we are there in the point when the you know, the, 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 the black is not called white and vice versa. Yes, yes. I really think there's a strong point in what you said about the long-term trends towards free expression and participation and the um, effectiveness, despite all these difficulties, of a Ukrainian government that's tried to preserve 
those elements with a new president, a surprising president to those at least from outside the country, someone who was, of course, more, more of a comedian than a politician before. I guess the final question I want to ask, and we always like to close, Natalia, on a question that's positive and forward-looking, showing how this historical background that you've shared can help us to look forward. What is it that Americans who care about Ukraine and care about democracy, what is it that they should be doing? What are the opportunities for the United States to help without harming? So there is something which the state is doing, of course, in particularly because in the end, Ukraine is at war and it really depends on international help today. I'm not speaking now about providing weapon or something, but as I mentioned in the very beginning of the talk, that as you understand, any conflict long run, it poisons society. It makes society vulnerable. It's very hard to make democracy and fight for freedom of speech and the human rights when there is an actual war going on. For a couple of years, the United States were kind of not really present in the solution of the conflict. We now have all these talks with the U.S., with France and Germany, and the U.S. wasn't part of it. So we really have the political aspiration that maybe in this conflict, which is more political rather than human conflict, it's really about that, uh, the conflict with Russia, then the U.S. can play the, the role because the U.S. has the leverage. That's on this level. But on the human level, the world is more connected. The Now there is also the competitions for the narratives. So for us, the country is, it come to the map of the Ukraine, of the average American citizen, because 20 or 15 years ago, who would care? Ukraine wasn't Russia, that was enough. Now, because it was everywhere in the news, I think it's important to understand what's going on in the country, looking at kind of developments which are there, understand partly what's going on and maybe also learn some of the things because, you know, we have this discussion in the U.S. about fake news. I remember very well in 2016 when I was reporting from Ohio. I need to explain people what the fake news are. I need to explain to local journalists how is it that the kind of high-level uh, politicians just lying uh, that people would vote against their interest or, for instance, that the things which are just not existing would be presented as the truth. In 2020, I didn't need to explain that. Of course, because that's something we had experienced in 2014 in case of Ukraine. So I think the whole idea of better communication, better understanding of how in the other part of the world uh, the, the, the different societies are searching their ways for normal life, that's something uh, to have a bit more empathy, to have a bit more knowledge, to have a bit more interest, or at least not uh, you know, buying to the narratives which had been misused for the recent years. That would be already helpful for the Ukrainian society. The most important thing is just like treat it as any normal democratic society. That would be good with its problems. But, you know, every country has its problems. I think that that would be the, the very important thing in our history. That's so uh, inspiring and insightful, right? I mean, that we should treat Ukraine as a normal country, a country that deserves our respect and our help, and not treat it as some special case that's 
extra bad or that has extra problems of one kind or another, to be attentive to fake news and to be better informed. Zachary, is this a, a, a set of guidelines that are inspiring for young people like yourself who care about foreign policy and care about democracy? Do you think many young people will pay attention in our society? Certainly. I think there has been an increased understanding and awareness among young people that other countries in the world that we think of as troubled because we see them in the news solely from the perspective of conflict are really just as vibrant and have the same civil societies that we value so highly at home. And I think that would mean then that we should not treat them as patients, but more as partners. Exactly. Well, Natalia, I think you have shared so much detailed information with us, a valuable firsthand perspective. You bring together that knowledge of what's happening on the streets, so to speak, along with the learning and scholarship that you also bring to the question. It's really a joy to have you with us and share your insights and your passions with our listeners. Thank you, Natalia Gumenyuk, for being with us today. Thank you. And Zachary, of course, thank you for your poem. And thank you most of all to our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.